You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi, welcome to the Washington Post. I'm Jackie Alimany, a congressional investigations reporter here at the Post. We have a lot to cover today with our guest, water from water conservation issues to conservative politics and more. I am joined today by Utah's Governor Spencer Cox. Governor Cox, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you. It's great to be with you again. And a quick note for our audience, we do want to hear from you. So please send us questions on Twitter using the handle at post live. Governor, to start, I want to set the record straight or have you set the record straight for us. You were out for a run on Saturday morning when any other residents heard an explosion. What was that mysterious noise over Salt Lake City this weekend? Well, yeah, yeah. So I'm running, and uh, and I hear this explosion. My my first thought is, is that an earthquake? Because sometimes they have that sound. I, I kind of waited. Nothing was was moving, and I thought, well, it, it sounded like a sonic boom, but it was weird. It was there was an initial boom, and then there were a couple muffled booms after that, almost like it was moving. And uh, immediately reached out to uh, to our our teams. Um, they reached out. We have military installations all across Utah who are sometimes doing different different explosive a- activities. It, it wasn't them. Um, we were able to. See Soon confirmed that it, it actually was a meteor that, that that entered the atmosphere over Utah and uh, and and exploded into some smaller pieces. We we don't know where those land, but we were landed, but we were able to confirm that it was indeed a meteor that that made that explosion. So you didn't take any meteor home that day after your run. No, no, I was not unfortunately unable to locate where the, the meteor landed. Probably closer to Idaho. Uh, it was it was moving very quickly to the north. We we did get some video confirmation from some ring doorbells and other places that saw the blue streak traveling across the sky. So definitely not something you see or hear every day. Uh, n- no confirmation if there was any alien life form attached to that uh, that meteor, though. <laughs> I'm sure the House Intel Committee is going to be very interested in in that topic. But at the top of mind for for people in Utah right now is the drought. The breaking news this afternoon is that the Biden administration has announced that water shortages along the Colorado River passed a threshold for the first time that will require unprecedented cuts for states in the region. As you know, the southwestern U.S. is falling, uh, is facing the most extreme drought in Uh, 1,200 years, and the drying Salt Lake is uh, causing significant issues for the surrounding ecosystem. What are Utah and other upper Colorado river basin states prepared to sacrifice, given the call for basin-wide cuts of two to four million acre feet? Sure. So that that announcement today will have some some serious impacts, of course, um, on on especially on the lower basin states who have over allocated their proportion of, of the water. Um, many of the the upper basin states, including Utah, we're under our allocation, but but that doesn't matter that much when when there isn't enough water to go around. So we we know we were all going to have to make make sacrifices. Uh, we've been working really hard on that here in the state of Utah since I took office last year. Uh, we we introduced and and passed eleven. 12 pieces of legislation specifically around water conservation and reducing the amount of water that is being used in Utah per capita. uh, additional legislation around preserving the Great Salt Lake, which, as you mentioned, is at, at record lows right now. We're about a foot below the record we set in, in 1964. Um, certainly, something we're, we're deeply concerned about. Uh, we changed uh, we, we changed legislation that had been in place since Utah became a state um, well over 100 years ago, impacting the way that we um, th- that that. Uh, 
I guess let me back up. Historically, in Utah and many other states, uh, we had a use it or lose it mentality. If you're not using your water rights, then, then you could forfeit them which gave an incentive for people to, to sometimes overwater. Um, and, and certainly there was no incentive to leave water in the stream bed uh, that would take it to a place like the Great Salt Lake. That was not considered a beneficial use. Um, we changed that doctrine this, this past year in the state that allows uh, farmers and ranchers and, and other water rights holders to keep their water in the stream bed without the potential for losing that. Um, that that's going to have a major impact on, uh, on the Great Salt Lake. But more importantly, we've seen uh, tremendous work around conservation. Uh, we, we've had some areas of the state that have seen a 25% uh, water reduction rate usage uh, by, by farmers, ranchers, uh, citizens, homeowners, uh, everybody is cutting back. Uh, companies, employers, everybody's doing their part and, and it's actually working. So we're, we're very proud of the work that has happened there, but we still have a long ways to go and I will continue to work with the legislature. We, we put aside uh, about uh, $500 million this past year, which is a record amount of funding for water conservation. And we hope to do the same thing next year. With everyone cutting back, does Utah still want to build a pipeline from Lake Powell when it's clear that the reservoir is drying up? Yeah, sure. So, of course, we would love to build that pipeline, but uh, we, we're also very practical and recognize that uh, that's that's not going to do us much good with Lake Powell and Lake Mead at record low levels. So even though we are underutilizing our portion of the, the that belongs to, to Utah, has been assigned to Utah as part of that Colorado River Compact, we, we, we recognize that if there's no water there, then that that's not going to matter. That's not going to help. So we, we have to focus on rebuilding that that capacity, um, making sure, again, if, if we are going to continue an extended drought, that we're doing everything possible uh, with, within upper basin states and lower basin states to really preserve that, uh, the, the, the ecology of the river and, and making sure that we're, we're doing our part to get more water into that river system. And so uh, I, I suspect, and, and as we continue, that, that that's going to be slowed down, that, that project, unless and until we can get more water and, uh, and, and the recovery happens. And I want to ask you about a criticism uh, that allowing for rapid city growth like that of St. George, Utah, which is one of the fastest growing cities in the country and also has the highest water consumption rate in the West is irresponsible given the drain of natural resources. What's your response to that? Sure. Well, a couple of responses. One, I would challenge uh, that the the second part of that um, that that they have the highest consumption per capita in the West. Um, we measure things a little different than some other states. And so those aren't apple to apple comparisons. I would also say that we have significantly cut back, especially St. George in that area. Um, they've been implementing over the last couple of years, some very serious water restrictions um, that, that are cutting down significantly on the amount of water that is being used per capita. So that that is very responsible. And uh, I, I'm grateful that they are making those, those decisions as a municipality, as a county, and of course, as a state. We have have a, we have a role to play there. Um, we one of the laws we passed this this uh, this last legislative session requires municipalities um, to be able to prove that they have the water to support the growth that is going to be happening. So that's important not just for St. George but for every municipality in, in the state. Many of them were doing that already, but not all of them. And so we're uh, the the engineers are going to be able they're going to have to show that uh, that they have the water available 
for the building permits that are being issued. And that will certainly help um, move the growth to the places that can sustain it where we do have enough water and slow the growth in places where we don't have enough water. So the uh, the ability to conserve and, and be more water wise is going to be critical to our ability to grow as a state. And if we, you know, if, if, if we don't have the water available, then, then we're not going to be able to grow as much as, as we would like. And most of the growth is still internal. These are people who, these are kids and grandkids, um, people who are moving back to Utah, grew up here. And uh, we certainly want to make sure that our kids and grandkids can live here. And I want to ask you about another lake that is shrinking in, in your state, the Great Salt Lake, which is unleashing dangerous toxins. We have images here actually depicting the lake drying up over time. The first image from 1985 and the second from just last month. What action are you taking to protect this, this ecosystem and the surrounding affected areas? Sure. So, so I mentioned one of those changes, and that was changing that longstanding law that now allows uh, allows water rights holders to keep water in the stream that will get to the to the Great Salt Lake. We also set aside uh, forty million dollars to purchase those water rights. So, again, this is a change. This is now giving us the opportunity uh, to purchase these rights, and we're we're using some great nonprofits uh, to to help us with this that that are that are working on preserving those those waterways, um, preserving the uh, the 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 animal sanctuaries around that landscape um, to get more water in into the river. So so that forty million dollars will be able to purchase water rights, release water rights from water rights holders, and get that water in into the uh, into the lake bed. Um, very critical. We're also doing a significant amount of work around the stream beds uh, to, uh, to 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 enhance and and actually remove some of the invasive species that have gone in there. These invasive species of, of plants and trees, uh, Russian olives and others, um, suck water out of the landscape and and uh, again don't provide any any real benefit to the surrounding areas. And and so by removing those, we're keeping more water in the stream and getting it to the uh, getting it to the end of the row, literally to the uh, to to the great. Salt Lake. Um, we need more money for that. And uh, we, we've had those conversations with the legislature. Um, I have a speaker of the House who's very dedicated to, uh, to, to preserving and saving the, the Great Salt Lake. So we're going to see additional funding for that uh, coming, coming in the future that will make a significant difference. We're also working with the federal government as well. If this, if this lake goes dry, the impacts of that will, will not just hurt Utah, but surrounding states as well. So there's certainly a federal nexus there. Um, there's been legislation run by uh, members of, of Congress from the state of Utah and, and with, with support from, from leadership in both parties to help us get some resources here, as well as the Army Corps of Engineers that will help us uh, work on, on plans and, and some of the scientific studies to understand exactly what is happening with the hydrology of the lake and how we can, uh, we can do more to save that. Now, I want to pivot to a slightly different topic of conversation. You've garnered a lot of attention for your decision on transgender athletes. You've said that you're an outspoken LGBTQ ally. Does your thinking on this reflect a shift in the state of Utah on these social issues? Well, I, 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 there is certainly a divide on these very contentious issues. Um, that That's true across the United States, and it's also true here in the state of Utah. Um, I, I do believe that there is a change that is happening, and, and I think it's an important change um, that, that helps us understand that that we, you know, we, we are all children of, of a God, that we are all brothers and sisters, that we, we love each other, and, and that one of our primary duties and purposes is to help care for everyone, especially those who feel marginalized Personalized or 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 different, and uh, I, I am certainly seeing more of that. 
Um, I was uh, I was very grateful. Um, I, you you have reported on this, but uh, all four members uh, of, of the House of Representatives and Congress from the state of Utah, uh, all four Republicans voted um, to uh, to support same sex marriage, which uh, which was very different than a, a vote that would have been taken ten years ago. And and I think that's really what this is about. It's it's about um, the, the the second great commandment to love our our neighbors, to love others. Uh, and and that's that's something that I certainly believe in, and it's something I've been I've been trying to to focus on for for many years, um, making space for everyone in our state to feel like they belong here, and and certainly we're we're trying to do that. We're we're not perfect. Uh, I'm not perfect. We're not there yet, but I, I think we've made great strides. And I think if you talk to anybody from the LGBTQ community here in the state of Utah, they would they would say that Utah has come a long ways on on these issues. And I want to get to a, a great question from uh, and someone in the audience, Randall in Maryland, uh, who asks, why are Utahns able to compromise on such a difficult issue as LGBTQ rights and religious liberty when so many other states can't compromise on anything? Are you encouraging other GOP governors to do the same? Yeah, yeah, we certainly are, um, and and I appreciate the the question and bringing that up. Um, maybe referring specifically to a law that we passed. Gosh, I, I, time flies. Maybe maybe six years ago. It seems some sometime around there. Um, when when we came together, we had the religious community, and by the way, not just the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, uh, formerly known as the Mormons, uh, but but also religious leaders from many denominations that that came together to work with our LGBTQ community and and we passed this a signature bill um, that that did preserve and and, and enhance uh, the, the the rights of faith-based institutions and 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 believers in in our state so so protecting that piece um, of the uh, 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 of the First Amendment that is so critical to all of us but also supporting and putting in protections specifically in the areas of, of housing and employment um, protections for the uh, the LGBTQ community and we we set that up really as a model for the nation. Our hope was, uh, again, at a very divisive time when when these discussions were happening in in Arkansas and Indiana, um, and and certainly at the national level, that this could be a model for for the rest of the nation. Um, and unfortunately, that that hasn't been the case. Uh, there. Uh, there is an effort in Arizona right now to pass something similarly. There, there has been some proposed legislation in Congress that would do the same thing. Um, I think it makes perfect sense. It's worked very well here, and both sides would tell you that. And uh, it seems like the, I, I just, gosh, it's so frustrating. I believe that this is one area, but there are so many others. Immigration is another example where Utah did something very special. Now, neither uh, President Obama nor President Trump would allow us to implement what we did, but we found some great compromise around immigration that I think could be a model for the nation. There's so many of these other areas where we're not that far apart and, and either side being willing to just give a little bit, we can, we can solve you know 90% of our problems and, and really build bonds that, that bring Republicans and Democrats together. Now, the question is, why, why can't this happen anywhere else? And certainly we're seeing threads of this in Utah as well, uh, but it, it's um, the incentive structure just historically, recently, I guess, has not been there for, for 
politicians, unfortunately. Um, we, we tend to do better and get elected by, um, by demagoguing, by othering um, people who disagree with us, uh, by, by applying a purity test to, uh, to people in each party, uh, trying to kick people out who disagree on anything. And, uh, and it's leading to this place where we are as divided as a nation as we've been uh, probably since, uh, since the uh, 1860s. And it, it's leading to, um, to, to some failures and, and inability to solve real problems that are affecting people's lives. And we lament that. We're hoping that we can be different in Utah. Sometimes we are, sometimes we're not, but we're certainly trying. And you have previously said that you wholeheartedly supported the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade and that this was an issue that should be decided by the states. How concerned are you that 50 state legislatures battling this out might exacerbate divisions in the country on the issue of abortion? Well, I'm, I'm less concerned about that. I mean, the, the, the reason that one of the reasons we're so divided is because of Roe. Um, because we had this piece of, uh, uh, of policy and legislation that didn't come from Congress, that didn't come from, from the states. Um, it, it came from, from some you know, nine unelected people uh, at, the, at the Supreme Court. And if you look at what's happened in other countries where, where they've been able to kind of find maybe a better balance uh, uh, that, that, that makes a little more sense and isn't quite as divisive, we, we never got that opportunity as a country. It was kind of imposed on us. And, and I believe you can point to a lot of the divisions in our country right now, I believe point back to that decision in Roe um, that, that has led us to, to a place where we are so divided. And so my, my hope is that now through the laboratories of democracy that, that over time we'll be able to find a, a stasis, a balance, a, a better way of, 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 of figuring out this, this, this tug and pull that is happening between people um, like me who believe that there is life before birth and uh, that that life is vulnerable and worth protecting, as is all life, and uh, and those that believe that there should be um, a, a right to abortion in in some cases, uh, or or in all cases, that that kind of finding that that right balance and where we end up, obviously, is going to be different in different states. Uh, but I, I think if we had had this opportunity back in the '70s and '80s, we wouldn't be nearly as divided as we are right now. You've also said that every time there is an abortion, there has been a failure, failure, and you've pledged to do more to support mothers, pregnant women, and children facing poverty and trauma. I'm wondering what are some of those things that your administration is doing more uh, and, and addressing some of the systemic issues that are tied into abortion care? Sure. So, um, uh, coincidentally, I just had a meeting this morning with uh, with my lieutenant governor, uh, Deidre Henderson, who is working with me on developing policy ideas. Um, we're we're going to be bringing those to the legislature as as we prepare for a legislative session that is coming up in in January. So, um, we're we're just we're workshopping these. I mean, the, these are ideas that we believed in for a long time, but it, they will center around um, maybe three or four policy areas. So, so one is um, trying to prevent unwanted pregnancies as, as much as, as possible. So access to, uh, to contraception is, is one area where I think we can do more. Um, talking about, uh, again, supporting um, mothers, especially single mothers uh, who, who are struggling, those who are living in poverty, um, th that will be access to childcare, um, making it easier 
for um, for pregnant women to get uh, to get the health care that they need uh, to, uh, to to have a successful birth and and then providing the support after birth to to those those moms and and uh, and and those new children um, looking at ways to hold men more accountable and more responsible it, 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 it takes two to make a child and uh, and and we haven't historically as a country I think done as well as we can uh, to hold men accountable um, one of the things that we passed uh, last not not this year but but the year before was uh, w was a policy change around prohibiting um, the uh, the procurement of hunting and fishing licenses to uh, to men who are behind in their uh, in their their child care payments uh, through um, who men who have been divorced or or are have have uh, have have never wed but 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 uh, fathered a child and uh, we've we've actually seen that be successful so we're looking at other ways where we can expand that to to try to hold people more accountable for their their responsibilities. Um, so, so those are just a, a few of the areas where, where we're working to try to make a, a significant difference. And I'm really hoping that we will have several policy proposals that will be passed by the legislature that will show that we do care about all life. Um, obviously life in the womb, but, but especially life after, after birth and, uh, and the women who are, are far too often bearing the responsibility of caring for these children. I'm wondering though, Governor, how does holding men more accountable help a woman uh, who ultimately decides uh, that for even maybe potentially medical reasons, personal reasons, that, that she does not want to carry a child to term? Well, it, again, it, it helps when that child is born and and potentially helping to pay for the child care costs even before that child is born. Uh, there are too many men that uh, that fail in their responsibility um, to that that woman and to that child. And so that's that's where the help comes is making sure that we're getting monetary help um, from the, the people who should be responsible, equally responsible for the creation of that life. And I want to jump to some news of the week. You were critical of what you saw as an overreaction by some in both parties to the search at Donald Trump's Florida residence of Mar-a-Lago. It's been a week now since that search warrant was executed. In your view, was this government overreach or an example that no one is above the law in America? Well, I, I don't know that we have a clear answer to that yet, and we won't until we know all of the details. Now, we, we have seen some of what was what was in the warrant. At least we know that was finally released, and, and it was released, I believe, a couple days late. Um, and so so I have been very critical of, of both sides of this issue. And look, I, I, I mean, I just, I just have to say this again because I think it's so important. Um, first of all, this is not just like any other citizen. It's just, it's just not. As much as we would like it to be, it's not. This is a former president of the United States. And, and we have to live in a practical reality that this is very different. And the reaction to this was always going to be very different. And, uh, and, and, and I hope the FBI and the DOJ understand that. I think they do. I mean, they've said as much. And so while, yes, if, uh, you know, if, if, if the FBI were to come and search my home, um, they, they may not say anything publicly about it. Um, you have to say something publicly about this and you have to give as much information as you can from the beginning and at every stage of this investigation. You have to be a completely open book in this one. Um, you, you, there's just no other way around this. The stakes are too high and, uh, and, and the potential negative results are far too damaging. And so I was very critical of the FBI and the DOJ for not coming out at the very beginning. Look, we, we have a, 
we, we have a saying in my administration that um, if, if there is a vacuum of information, it will be filled and it will almost always be filled with bad information. And we certainly saw that. And, and part of that is just people making stuff up. And part of that is the media having to fill pages and time, right, on, on air. And so you have to bring in experts who will tell you what they know, even though they don't know any more than, than any random citizen knows at the time. And so we're filling that with bad information and that leads to terrible outcomes. Um, and so, so the DOJ and the FBI have an absolute responsibility in this case, because it is so very unique, um, to keep us as informed as, as possible, even going overboard to keep us informed. And if they, if they have the goods, show us the goods. I mean, you, you have to do that. Um, at the same time, we had people, of course, um, uh, in, in my party and others who were trying to defend something that they have no concept about. Um, it, it, one of the things I love about the United States of America is that, that we do not, we never never should use um, our, uh, our position of authority to punish our political enemies. Um, and so the, the, the Biden administration should never use the DOJ and the FBI to pu punish their political enemies. Um, by the same token, a Republican administration should not use these, uh, these levers of power uh, of law enforcement to, to punish our political enemies. And so anytime you have a, a, a Democrat in office um, and there's a search or, or some sort of criminal activity uh, related to a, a Republican or, or criminal investigation re related to a Republican, there's going to be immediate pushback and, and vice versa. We've certainly seen that um, with, uh, with, with Hillary Clinton. We, we've seen it with, uh, with Hunter Biden. Um, we, we've seen that, that pushback that's going to come. Um, at the same time, one of the things that's great about living in the United States of America is that no one can or should be above the law. If a law was broken, um, then everyone should be held responsible. You don't get a pass just because you're a governor or you're a, um, or, or you're a former president of the United States. And so, uh, again, I think we should withhold um, any judgment until we know what we're actually talking about. And then we should deeply scrutinize exactly what it is that's happening, because, again, this is not like any other situation. And uh, we have to hold them to the highest possible standard. Governor, unfortunately, we are all out of time, even though I have several questions left for you. But, but uh, Governor Spencer Cox of Utah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jackie. We'll save it for the next time. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.